notes in front of you from if you got on your way in. If you're visiting, we are working. Wake up! <laughs> We're working our way through uh, a letter of James to that first century church. Um, we're within a couple of weeks of actually finishing, so um, we'll get through this and figure out where we're going to go next. But coming out of last week's message, just to bring us back into the context of what we're talking about, uh, we were in verse 13, is why I had said
think about that. You're, you're in a church, uh, which, which this was. We know from the beginning of our study in the book of James that James is writing to the church that was what? They were scattered abroad. Why were they scattered? They were scattered because of persecution. They were living in anticipation of Jesus coming back. And can you imagine if when, whenever, how many of you have ever wanted something so bad and, and you've waited and you've waited and sooner or later you just sort of get really antsy. What's going on? And then you start to get cranky. And all. That sort of might be the mentality of what was going on here at this time. And in that church, as he's addressed many things as we walk through this, this, this letter, think about the anguish and, the, and maybe even despair, the, 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 the rubbing together as they're not experiencing what they thought was going to happen. And then again, you add that persecution to it, and there could be a lot of inner conflict inside and outside the church. But James has told them, we've already read that in verses 4 through 413 where he says come now you who say today or tomorrow and then in, in verse 1 of chapter 5 he says come now you rich and he gets to this verse and he says what therefore be right therefore be patient it is in that context that he puts that here they're to be patient with each other as they wait these believers were challenged to look for his return and, and to be patient. They were challenged to look at their lives and to stay clean. We're going to look at these things uh, this week and next. We're not going to get all the way through this. They were challenged to look in this passage to, to look at the examples of those uh, in the past, the prophets and Job, and they were challenged to persevere. And they were challenged to look to the future and stay consistent in their walk. And you think about it, there were signs in that time that they were told to look for. We also told about signs that we are to watch for. And we've been given signs to look for that will give us hints of that time when Jesus is coming. I remember back in the, in the I guess it was in the 70s, I don't remember. When did Thief in the Night come out? It was in the 70s, wasn't it? All right, those of us that are that young. A thief in the night had come out through that that period of time. There was this emphasis on prophecy, and then after the thief in the night came all of the Left Behind series movies, which really are a lot of Hollywood stuff in there. But the premise was that that Jesus was coming back, and I remember as a kid being so scared that I was going to miss Jesus coming back. And I think I've told this before. My mom and dad may not even know this, but. I'd get up in the middle of the night and make sure they were still on their bed. Because I was worried that I was going to go. Maybe I wasn't ready. I'd get on a turn. We had WBYO was a station we had in Watertown, Pennsylvania. And it was a Christian station. And I'd get on and turn that on and make sure the Christians were still broadcasting in case I missed it. It's that thought uh, that, that, that we're to live with that anticipation that he could come back at any moment. He could come back before the end of the service. <laughs> that would be great. For us, it wouldn't be so great for those that would be left behind. <laughs> right? But the Bible gives us signs. The Bible tells us that a sure sign of the return. And listen, you think about where we are today. You think about even when that movie was made in the 70s about the signs that were going on at that time. And, and you think about where they were right after Jesus had left. Now, James was written, what, 60 years, maybe 70 years after Jesus had left? Or 
60 AD, I guess, or so that would be 30 years after Jesus said life. Right? And, and they were watching for the signs. And think about how bad our times are. We think our time is really bad. This is nothing new in the world. It happened at different times through times. That's why the flood happened. That's why other things have happened. But the Bible tells us that a sure sign of return of Jesus is this. It's a turning away from the truth of the gospel by preachers and teachers. So as we think about this, I want you to focus a little bit on the signs of our times. Because we live in a time where there, there's nothing prophetically, just so you know, that, that has to happen for Jesus to come back. Everybody know that? If you didn't, try and find one prophecy that has not been fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled except for Christ's return. They're all done. It could be at any moment. And we're told to watch out as, as, as some turn away from the truth of the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4, 2 through 5, Paul, in his last letter, as he's getting ready to be executed, writes to Timothy and tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. It's one of the things that we need to look for. A time when there's a turning from the truth of the gospel. Is that something we really need to look real hard for today? No, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. All you got to do is turn on any Christian TV station and you can see the, the, the false doctrines that are being taught. You need to be watchful. You need to know your scripture. Why are we having a Bible study in the back that's going over a, a counterfeit gospel? So that you have the ability to see false, to know the real, but to see the false because you know the real. So we're to look for that time. The Bible also tells us that Jesus, uh, that before Jesus returns, that Israel will reemerge as a as a major player on the world scene. Amos nine verses fourteen and fifteen say this: I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from their land. I have given them, says the Lord your God. Anybody know what year that happened? Why? Somebody said it. I heard somebody. You know, 1948. What happened in 1948? Israel became and was recognized as a nation. Already fulfilled. All right, so we're to watch for that. That's one of those things that is supposed to happen. And, and then I want you to understand something. If you've never thought about this before, think about this little piece of land on the, the corner of the Mediterranean Sea that is, I think, 90 miles wide and 200 miles long. But yet the whole world is focused around that land. Think about that. Why is that? You want to prove that God's word is true? Right there's a good proof right there. Because everything is focused. That, that piece of land is so important. 
and the people are so important. Why do you think Hitler was used of Satan to exterminate all of those in an effort to destroy God's people? So one of the signs is that, that Israel will reemerge as a major player in the world scene. And, and just so you know this, young people especially, it's very important that we as a nation recognize, support, and pray for Israel. Why do you think our nation has been so blessed over these years? Because of that. So it's very important, very important. Um, the Bible also tells us that there will be a great returning of the Jews uh, to their land in Israel. Deuteronomy 4.27 says, The Lord will scatter you among the people, and only a few will survive, it says. But later on it says, in, in chapter 28, verse 37 and 65, it says, You will become an object of scorn and ridicule, ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. Among those nations you will find no resting place, but Ezekiel later on, in Ezekiel 36-24, talks about the day when God will gather his people from all countries, from all around the world, and bring them back into their own land. Listen, if you go on and, and try and find uh, the numbers, I couldn't really get the numbers of how many of uh, the Jewish people have made a trek and moved back to Israel. It's, it's a large number. Millions of Jews have returned to Israel since the nation was given statehood in 1948. One of the signs that we're told to watch for. The Bible tells us that before Jesus returns, that a powerful coalition of nations will emerge out of Europe. Now think about history, where we are right now. Think about the European Union. Think about all of those things that are going on over in that part of the world. Right? Daniel referred to them as the, the ten horns of the ancient Roman Empire. These nations will become large economic and industrial powers, and they will form an alliance with every major world power. It will eventually usher in a one world government. Now listen, when you hear this word said among the politicians, and I'm not going to get into politics, but there's a word called a globalist, that's this. That's this. One world power. One world government. The Bible tells us that shortly after, before, or shortly before Jesus returns, and that an electrifying leader will emerge on the world scene. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. The leader will bring the promise of bringing world peace. Now, just so you know this, when will there be peace in the world? When Christ comes back. The first time? Second time? Down here yet. Alright? There won't be peace on this world until Jesus sits on that throne. He will promise to free the world of war and will promise to solve the world's problems. The Bible also tells us that before Christ returns, a new religion will reunite or will unite the world under one banner. The world's religion, just so you know, it can have any title it wants, but there's a one, one word that describes it. Humanism. Humanism. A new age of humanistic thought will exalt man 
of Christ. Where we are. Some of the battles that are going on. And James says this. We should live with the same attitude just as though Christ died yesterday and the cross has not been taken down from Calvary. We should live as though Christ arose today and the grave clothes are still lying in their place. We should live, also live as though he will return tomorrow. We should live with that same expectancy as these believers, and yet, James says what? Be patient until the Lord's return. Now that being patient isn't being patient with the world. Everybody understand that. Make sure you get the context right. It's being patient inside Brother, <laughs> brother is what he's talking about. So being your notes is this. We're to look for Jesus' return and we're to be patient. Patient, the original word translated to patient means to be long-tempered, long-suffering, to have a long fuse. And again, remember, who is he writing to? Is he writing to non-Christians or Christians? Christians. He's writing to Christians that are being persecuted. He's writing it to Christians who've been anticipating and waiting and becoming impatient because the Lord hasn't come back yet. So we're to be long-tempered. We're to be long-suffering. We're to have a long fuse with each other. A picture that comes to mind is that of a long-distance runner who thinks of the long-term as he runs and focuses on the final lap. James is telling them to stay focused on the big picture and to not let the momentary mess up lay them out. Take them out of the race. Disqualify them for service. So they're to be patient. The word until is a simple definition. We all understand what it means, but it's the word that gives the idea of waiting, waiting for or looking for with anticipation. And the picture here is that of a pregnant woman who is fully anticipating the birth of her child but knows that she has to take care of the moment and to wait patiently for that day. You sort of get, that sort of gives you a better picture of what James is talking about. It says there in verses 7 through 8, Therefore be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord. And he says this, See how the farmer waits. For the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. So we're to look for Jesus' return and we're to be patient. And he gives the example of a farmer. I didn't know this, but in my study I found out that history says that James was also a farmer, on top of being a pastor, as probably most of the people were, because I would imagine that most of the people in that time period grew food in some way. It may not have been their trade, but maybe in the sense of being a gardener. And the patience that they were to have was, was the equal to a farmer as he sows and as he reaps. You say, well, what does that mean? And then he, said, he says in this verse, that will help bring it out a little bit, he says, see how the, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. The early rains in Israel fall during October and November. And this is what they do for the farmer. 
They softened the ground so that he could plant his seed. Now think about that. Who was the farmer waiting on for those rains? God. He's waiting on God so that he can plant the seed. So they're going to have that same patience. I'm not a farmer, never was a farmer. Bill, your dad was a farmer. Did he struggle with the weather? They all do. Sometimes it rains too much, sometimes it don't rain enough, sometimes it snows too long. And, and but that's up to God, but they're to wait patiently. They didn't have the equipment that we have today. You picture the John Deere of, of Jerusalem time. It didn't wasn't green and yellow. It was brown and we went, Alright? Right? The horsepower was literally horsepower. They didn't have the implements that we have, that you can dig into hard ground and hard soil. But they required, of course, animal power, but also what else was required? They didn't have an air-conditioned camp to sit in. They sat what? Blood and sweat. Right? There's a certain amount of, I remember watching when I was, when I was uh, younger, I drove a nurse truck for an uh, agricultural company that sprayed farmers' fields. My territory was the Amish country in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Wardentown. And I remember watching them guys. <laughs> You've got access to all this equipment, and they're dragging horses around and in the back sweating. And they did their work. It was hard work. It wasn't like the rich farmer, well, they were rich, but it wasn't like the farmers down the street who had the big equipment. It was hard work. If the ground was hard, they could not plant, so they were relying on the rain to assist in the preparation of the ground. They couldn't do anything to hasten the rain. All they could do was patiently wait and trust the Lord that it would come. He says there in that verse 2, the latter rain. The early rains were in October and November. The latter rains fall in March and April, right before the spring harvest. The latter rains, they ripen the crop. The same patience of waiting for the imminent arrival of the early rains, the farmer has to wait for the latter rains also. And in your notes there, I just have two simple things. They need to be patient in sowing, and they need to be patient in reaping. Waiting periods are never without trials and testing. Everybody agree with that? Every church goes through a cycle. Alright? You know, when you get a new pastor, you have a honeymoon period. Like it's great, and all of a sudden, it's like, what happened? Well, you got that, that trial, time of trial and testing, and you got to stand, you got to be persevering, you got to be patient. All right, every period has trials and testing. Sometimes the weather in the farming sense stays too cold or too hot. If there's too much rain, the crop will rot. If there's too little rain, the crop will scorch. If there's too much hail, the crop will be stripped. If the freeze comes early, the crop will die. So what's the farmer to do? He stays calm and patiently awaits the harvest. And believers are told to have that same patience as they wait for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now listen, the farmer in that context didn't just sit around and do nothing the rest of the year. All right? Anybody who's been in farming knows there's a a lot of other work. A lot of other work. The patience doesn't mean we just sit and wait, twiddling our thumbs until Jesus comes back. We all hop 
hobble in some big brick building and, and just sort of hang out until he comes. We're to be busy about work. There's always work that needs to be done. In the farming sense, there's always work that needs to be done. For them in that time period, they had to feed the horses and do whatever else they did. Prepare the seed, weed the ground. I don't know what else they did, but there's always work to be done before the harvest. During the growing up of the harvest, and of course after the harvest, there's still work. A farmer doesn't have the luxury to just sit around and wait. He needs to be busy doing his, his daily chores. And James is telling us and telling them that we should await the Lord's imminent return like a farmer awaits the harvest, looking for his return with patience. Doesn't mean that we can't be really anticipated, but it's all in God's time. The farmer cannot control the weather. We cannot tell the Lord when to come back, can we? During the waiting period, there will be times of trials and testing. We can go all the way back to chapter 1. What was the purpose of, of, of trials? Trials was to produce what? Maturity. Right? The, the, the temptations were from the inside, the trials were from the outside, right? And what did they do? They produced that, 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 that maturity for ministry. There's always going to be people inside and outside the church that will cause trouble. Sometimes it's because of fear. Sometimes it's just because they're troublemakers. There will always be people taking our attention off the blessing of, first, of Christ's first coming. But we should learn from the farmer to do our part Work hard, stay focused, be patient, and wait on the Lord for the harvest. Everybody agree? The plowing and the planting of spiritual seed is hard work. The plowing and the planting of spiritual seed is, is also can be very discouraging. And I, and I think about that list because sometimes you sort of get wrapped up in that. You know, again, are we really making a dent? When you see, I don't remember how many names were on that list. We are. We are. Young people who've given up their, their summer to go and serve. Not just the young people, the way that, that you have stepped up in other ministries. The food pantry is a good example of that. There's a lot of hard work that goes in the food pantry from Larry and Irene all the way down through. We don't always see a harvest. How many years has the food pantry been here, Irene? Come on, get the math out. We're test your memory. 20? 15 to 20 years the food pantry's been around. Right? Have we seen an overabundance of fruit from that ministry in the past? In the present? In the future? It's been a gradual thing. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it. Some of you are evidence of that plowing and that planting and that reaping have come in through that ministry. It's hard work. We need to stay focused. We need to not be pulled away. And I just say this because I brought it up last week about us not having a picture of Bible school. Alright? There's two things that are involved with that. All right, number one, 
Part of it's me. The other part of it is you. We've been running so hard. I just think for this summer we do it. And refocus. Focus on our kids through the summer like we all do. Just so you know the reasons behind all of that. There are times when you just gotta rest. Just gotta rest. When your youth leaders are in their 80s. <laughs> right, Tom? We need a rest. So there's reason behind that. We're not done. We're just resting. Just take a minute, read their time, and refocus. James goes on. He says in verses, chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he says, you also be patient. So we're to live in the, in the, in the light of Jesus' coming. We're to look for his return. We're to be patient like a farmer. He says in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. <laughs> For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned because the judge is standing at the door. See in your notes is this. We're to look at our own lives and to be clean. And to be clean. When we have long periods of waiting time, it is easy to get discouraged and disgruntled and frustrated. Everybody agree with that? Sometimes, if some people turn to grumbling and complaining about each other, then they resort to holding grudges as if it was someone else's fault. The Lord has not gotten here yet, or hasn't given us that harvest that we were looking for. Paul, or James says, be patient. Patient with who? One another. Patiently wait on the Lord. Be patient with each other. There is potential within the church to become bitter and resentful toward each other when there's long periods of time come up and we start to look at each other rather than being focused on the Lord. And every church goes through that. A lot of us have been in churches most of our lives, have we not? If you go through and you look at it, how many churches don't have any problems? Yeah, that, that'll tell you right there's the answer. If you're new to coming to church, understand. We're going to have problems. But when we're focused, and, and the next thing he says in these verses will help us to understand how to stay focused. There are seasons of great ministry where God's hand is, is as clear as day. And then there are long periods, maybe, of what seems like God has lifted his hand of blessing from a church. We've been through some of those seasons over the last several years. And we may still be in one of them. These words are for us. And this next couple of verses shows us how to stay focused no matter what. To stay in the game and work hard and wait on the Lord. He says there in that next part of that verse, he says, do not grow, or, um, go back up. You will also be patient. And he says what? They would read that part in the verse. He says what? Look at your Bible. He says what? Establish your hearts. Established in other translations, and maybe the one you read says stand firm. The word is written in the active voice, meaning it is a constant, ongoing thing. It means to prop, to prop up. 
to strengthen your being. So when he says establish your heart, this is one of those verbs that is, is an active thing that is supposed to be ongoing. It's not a once and done thing. We need to establish our hearts. The subject of these, this passage in these verses is, is, is the brother. And they are to take that action personally. Who's he writing to? The Christians in that church. And he says, you, and I say you and me, as individuals, establish your hearts. Many times we want to solve each other's problems. We want a God to prop other people up. When the reality is, the only person you can change is who? You. It's you. You are to stand firm. You are to stand firm. Luke 9, 51. Jesus, it says, it says Jesus on his way to the cross. He says, it says, as the time approached for him, to be taken up the head of Jesus, set out for Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was ahead. He knew the pressure that was coming as the time got nearer. He knew about the trial. He knew about the beating. He knew about the cross. Yet he was patient and he stood firm. So we're to establish our hearts the coming of the Lord is at hand. Until the Lord returns or he takes you home, we should not only look to the Lord and be patient, but we should stand firm against anything sinful in our hearts. Anything that might cause our focus and our attitude to be divisive inside or outside. Inside of you or outside of you. Again, this is a personal choice. It is a personal action. Many people get frustrated with other people and they cause division and grumble against each other. And sometimes they leave when in reality it is their heart that is the problem, not the other people around. This can be traced back if you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, where we talked about it. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Remember when we looked at that, those two words, wars and fights? The war is the thing that goes on on the inside. Remember that battle that is constantly going on because a person has an unsettled heart. And that battle spoils out into the body and it becomes a fight. That's the, what James is writing. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? An unestablished heart, one that is in constant turmoil, maybe because of sin, maybe because of bitterness that is undealt with, with the results that are devastating for the individual and ultimately for the body, locally and all around the world. James says to stand firm against that. Establish your heart. And that thought is all throughout this letter. Let me just go back and review just to, to let you see it again. An established heart in verses. 6 and 7 of chapter 1. He says this, But let him ask in faith of no doubt, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So when we have an unestablished heart, we're double-minded. But when we have faith and we ask and we stand, 
Bible says our prayers are answered. If we doubt, if we have doubting and untrust in our hearts, it says we won't get anything from the Lord. In verses 14 through 16 of chapter 1, but let each one when he is tempted is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, and when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. If our hearts are controlled, or if our hearts are controlled by our flesh, we will give in to temptation. Temptation that comes from the trial. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we're headed in the right way. Verse 20 in chapter 1, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If our hearts are controlled by anger, our fruit is not of God, but of the flesh, the world, and Satan. Chapter 1, verse 22, which would be the theme verse of the whole entire letter, would be endures the word and not hears only deceiving yourselves. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not write on his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If our heart's desire is to only be a hearer and not a dear doer, our hearts deceive us. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So speak and so do as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If our heart is controlled by self-righteousness and partiality, we will experience the same as we've given Verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not do you do you want to know a foolish man that faith without works is dead? If our faith is just head knowledge and not heart-centered, our faith is dead. Standing firm, standing against is that constant ongoing action. And when a heart that's not established, these are the results. An established heart, and reading going back through the letter, verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who what? Endures temptation. Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brother, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, therefore. Having an understanding of this, my words, having an understanding of the pattern he's mentioned in that verse I just now read, slow to speak, swift to hear, slow to wrath, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Again, verse 22 of chapter 1, but he doers the word and not ears only. Chapter, or verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed. Chapter 2, verse 1, my brother, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Chapter, or chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so do. Verse 18, but someone will say you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Chapter 2, verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or mature. Chapter 3, verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And the solution is what we talked about a few weeks ago. 
verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, what? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you saints. Or double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, not saints. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Enjoy to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How do we establish our hearts the right way? Number one, you have to be saved. Holy Spirit moves into your life, and the Word of God, and that daily time of the Lord. And as times get harder, as persevere or persecution comes in, as the struggle and the, and the slow times come, when, when there's time to think about things you didn't have time to think about when you were busy, and all of a sudden that turmoil comes, where do we go to keep our heart focused on the Lord? Back to His Word. Back to His Word. He says there, and he says, do not grumble uh, with, against one another, brother, lest you be con condemned. Behold, the judge is standing door. We're to be patient with one another. Number two, you grumble from the original language gives the feeling, uh, the feeling is that it's internal and unexpressed. In other words, some of the grumbling he's talking about is, is just this, this thing that goes on inside of you of, of thinking about other people and Rumbling against them. Maybe you don't necessarily say anything. But what does that do? If you internalize all that, what does that do? It creates a hardness. It creates a bitterness. It creates an unforgiveness. James is saying, look at your own lives and get clean. One commentator put it this way. James pictured Christ as a judge about to open the doors to the and convene his court. Knowing that the strain of persecution could lead to grumbling, James cautioned his readers against that sin, lest they forfeit, forfeit their full reward. In other words, they'll get heaven, but they won't be rewarded for anything else. Let me just, I know it's running a little long here, but let me, let me just remind you what we're to be about. If you go to Revelation chapter 19, Tells of the, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says um, in verse 6 And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, who's his wife? It's us, it's you, it's me, it's the church, as a group, as a body has come and made herself ready. Now listen, if we're living in light of Christ's return, just as a bride, if you go back to the picture of a, of, a, of a bride, what's a bride supposed to be doing as her as waiting for her husband or her groom to come? She's supposed to keep herself pure. She's supposed to prepare herself for the, the husband's return so that she won't be found not ready. And the picture here in the marriage supper of the Lamb is when we think about being clean, when we think about living in the reality of Jesus' imminent return, which could be in any moment, you don't want to be the one that's caught, not dressed and ready to go. Get the picture there. That's what he's saying. It goes on, 
and, and, and uh, making herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. And then it says this, for the fine linen is what? It's the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, when we establish our hearts, when we live our lives according to the word of God, and we do what he tells us to do, those things are the beauty that we put on for when the groom comes. That's the picture. So we're to be clean. We're to be patient with one another. The next point is this, we're to be clean with each other. Jesus knows our hearts. I'll move through this really quickly. Jesus knows our hearts. We may be able to fool others and live a life of hypocrisy, but the righteous judge sees all. Since the Lord's return is imminent, we cannot afford to hold grudges and harbor sins in our lives. Personally, the consequences are too great. We, became, we become even more bitter. We are rendered useless for the master's purposes. We are a dirty vessel. The Bible even gives inferences that if we become such a detriment to the kingdom, that we may be taken home so that we may not cause damage to the glory of God and his mission. Corporately, one person's sin can cause great damage to the body at large. How many of you have heard of a guy named Aiken? Not Pat Aiken or Tom Aiken, but Aiken, just Aiken. I don't know what his name was. But remember the story of Aiken in the Old Testament? God had told the Israelites to go and destroy the pagan nations, right? They were to destroy everything. Young, old, no booty to bring back, which was usually what you got at war. And they were not to bring anything back. They were not to bring anything that polluted them back, right? You know the story of Achan, right? He took just a little. And he brought it back. What did he do with it? He hid it under his tent. The next time the Israelites went to battle, what happened? They lost. Because of that one man's sin, the entire nation of Israel was affected. And they lost. That would mean that people died. That would mean that God's glory was damaged. Okay? All of those things are in there. So understand this, corporately, one person's sin can cause great damage to the body. As a church, we deal with sin when we, when we can, and we're supposed to. But only you can deal with those personal sins, and in this case, it would be grumbling if that's the case. Remember this, we are stewards of the glory of God and the gospel. We need to live with, the, with that thought in mind. What we do can damage the glory of God. Remember the, again, and I've, I've said this a couple weeks in a row now, the book of Nehemiah, as, as the Israelites were coming back and forth to where Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was in distress. Why? Because the name of the Lord was a reproach to the names of the foreign nations. To the foreign nations. Here's the picture again. Just get this in your head. When, the, out, when the, the nations that were Israel's enemies looked at Israel, who was to be the light on a shining hill, who was to be the steward of God's glory, who was to live in obedience to, God's, in obedience to God, and he would bless them and show his greatness. Their city was destroyed because of what? Their sin. And it says in Nehemiah that it was a reproach to the name of 
mean this. Again, you've heard me say this over and over. That when those people from the outside looked on, they said, hey, you're God in nothing. Look at the way you're sitting. Was it God's fault the walls were in ruin? No, it was Israel's fault. <coughs> Understand, our lives can be that way. When we allow sin in our lives and people see it, it becomes a reproach to those outside because they look, you've often heard it said that, that your testimony outside, the way you live, either authenticates your message or it takes away from it. And the way we live, people look on and they say, hey, you're saved? <laughs> you're no different than me. And a lot of times we live our lives that way. I find that. He says here, we're to be clean with God and with each other. And the questions in closing are simply this. Are you living as if Jesus could return at any moment? A passage in, in Revelation 3.20 where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Any man lets me in, I'll come and sup with him. We often take that verse and say, oh, that's an evangelistic verse. No, it's not. Nothing to do with the gospel. What it is, is that church was so messed up that when Jesus came to the door, they didn't even recognize who he was to open the door. That's the picture of the context of that verse. And the question is, are you living as if Jesus could return at any moment? Or would he knock at your door and you wouldn't even answer? And you wouldn't even recognize who he was? Or if he came in, you'd be ashamed. Are you patiently awaiting his return? Working hard for the kingdom and the glory of God until that time. Is there anything in your life that will keep you from being used of God? Remember when we went through the passage where it says, draw near to God, and that was the picture of the Jew, Jewish time period of that, that uh, bronze basin where the servants, the priests, would go and they would wash their, their hands and the dirt off from serving the Lord in the temple. They would wash that filth off before they went into the, the next section. If they weren't clean, they couldn't go into the holy because they were dirty. That's the picture of that drawing near to God, if you remember. Is there anything that would keep you from being used to God? Is there anything in your life that will affect the ministry of this church? What you do outside these doors, whether you know it or not, affects what goes on inside this church, inside this building, inside the body life. Have you grumbled about anyone to someone else or just in your heart? I stand before you guilty of that. I took care of the Lord. James has already dealt with slander and the sin of putting untruths in the mind of others about someone that would damage that person's reputation here. And here he is dealing with with grumbling inside and outside about others. If you've sinned against God, make it right with him again. If you've sinned against another brother, even if they have no knowledge of it, 
make it right. Because what's at stake is the glory of God. That should scare you right there. But also the ministry of you personally and of this body you believe. And I'm not preaching this message because I know something's wrong. I'm preaching this message because this is where we are in church. This is a principle that can be applied. We're going to go through tough times. You and I both probably agree that this world is going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. Right? And the better time is only going to be probably when Jesus comes back. You don't know when that is. But we've been given a reason to be here. We've been saved from our sins and we've been given the stewardship of God's glory. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've also been given a stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a precious thing.
there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that they come across and get things right with you. Father, that they would repent of their sins and turn to you for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. Don't let them walk out without that. Father, for the rest of us, Lord, I pray if there's anything that we need to deal with personally, that we would deal with it. Father, that you would make us clean and usable for your glory and for the gospel's sake. Father, that, that uh, we would be used as we go out these doors now, throughout the week. As a church, we ask not to get filled this building. We'd ask that we would be able to spread the light of Jesus so that, so that the darkness in this community would be dispersed. Just use it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Will you stand together with us? Just <laughs> 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 <laughs>